Hi everyone, before we start this episode, we just wanted to let you know we touch on some sensitive topics in this episode, particularly slavery, and there are some quite graphic depictions of what was occurring in that time period. So if you are sensitive to that kind of thing, you might want to choose one of our other episodes. Otherwise, enjoy the episode. History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge to find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... happened everywhere. Hello, you're listening to History Happened Everywhere. I'm Peter Goddard here in the studio, as ever, with my soulmate, my inspiration, Mr. Ryan Weir. Hello, everyone. Uh, Ryan, last week the Derzelator gave us Procrastination in Benin from 1850 to 1900. Yeah, that was nice of it. Yeah, the big question for me is, do you actually have a show for us today or have you in fact <laughs> lived the topic to its full extent and now you've got nothing? Well, let's lift the curtain, shall we, a little bit and show people the workings of this. We are, what, three days after <laughs> our actual recording date? You, you have fully procrastinated. I have it's procrastinated true. an additional three days. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and I think I can, uh, you know, openly admit that because this episode is about procrastination. I'm looking forward to it. I think I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Maybe I'm not. Who knows? Yeah. Well, look, this was at the same time the easiest episode and also the hardest episode to research. Procrastination was the theme, but it leached into my actual life too. In this episode, we're going to sail into West Africa and discover peanuts, snakes, voodoo, cotton, and eventually the industrialised contribution towards one of the greatest sins of mankind, slavery. Should we get started? I think we should. All right, let's do it. So yes, welcome to the Voodoo Coast, the Venice of Africa. It's the Republic of Benin. Formerly known as Dahomey, Benin is not to be confused with the Kingdom of Benin, <laughs> or indeed Benin City, both of which are in southwestern Nigeria. If you imagine like me holding up a key, that's kind of what it looks like. So it's kind of a, like a, a slim country with the widest part just only 200 miles wide. Wow. 325 kilometers, yeah. It's bordered by Togo to the left, Nigeria to the right. It's got Niger and Burkina Faso to the north and the Bait of Benin to the south, which is the part of the Atlantic and basically the origin of the country's name. At just 115,000 square kilometers, Benin is five times smaller than France. That's remarkable because the other the countries in that region, Nigeria, I'm thinking of mostly, are massive. Yeah, uh, home to just 11 million people. Same amount as Greece. The landscape is coast in the south, uh, then it sort of plateaus and you have flat lands, which slope slightly upwards towards a mountain range in the north. So as a country, it's all downhill if you start in the north. <laughs> Very good way of putting it. <laughs> yep, the mountains contain gold, though. Uh, they have mines there, which account for 20% of their exports. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a good bit of gold. Uh, other exports, cotton, cashews, textiles, and seafood. The south is hot and humid. Uh, the north is sort of beaten by the Harmattan. Do you remember we talked about that during we the did. Mauritania? The, the blasting the wind. That's right, they come off the Sahara. So, yeah, if you were to look at Africa, uh, where you've got the Sahara and then you've got like the savanna, the green versus the yellow. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've Benin seen that map. Is, 
<laughs> Benini's right on that precipice between the two. Oh, right. Yeah. And it's a bit of a problem because a lot of the dust that the Hotmatten leaves kills off plants, kills off animals, and can cause a whole bunch of other issues. That being said, Benini is home to the largest population of lions in West Africa. Oh, really? Yeah, how about that? Panjari Natural Park is the place if you want to go and see them. I love a lion. I'd be up for seeing a lion. Well, there's more than one. Vodun or voodoo. It's the official religion. Oh, really? How cool is that? 17% of people still practice voodoo today. The national anthem. Do you want to hear it? I'm hoping for something a bit more exciting than our previous entries in this canon. <laughs> this is the dawn of a new day. I'm enjoying the upbeatness. It's that martial thing. It is the... Join the drums. I like this. I think it's good. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's inspirational. Yeah. I feel like it's a new day. It is a new day. Yeah. Bum, bum. There you go. That was the national anthem. Oh, very nice. I like that one. Cool. Benin facts! <laughs> this is my favourite bit of the show, and you know that, right? I know you love a Benin fact. Well, not even Benin. Any any nation, small nation fact. <laughs> yeah, I just love a fact. Okay, Benin, it has 121 kilometres of coastlines. Not a huge amount. Not a huge amount, but 21 kilometres, 13 miles, is called Grand Popo, and is prime sandy beaches stolen from Togo. So if you follow the map down, <laughs> like a key, to the bottom, then there's a bit that shoots out right at the end, a very sliver that is on the map. They just go, oh, that's that us. Out. <laughs> they claim that it's to do with the rivers that are nearby or something, and they own the rivers, and so they're taking that. But by river, they mean ditch. So you could essentially live in your house in Togo and kind mm -hmm. of look across to the sea. <laughs> yeah, not be able to get there. And you'd be like, oh, where's my passport? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some believe... Uh, that if you take a photograph of somebody, it will take part of their soul. So if you're visiting there, make sure to ask to take a picture. Uh, very superstitious culture. They also believe that albinos, people that have, you know, sort of no pigment in their skin, um, that is a mystical power. In fact, eating a piece of their body is said to give you supernatural abilities. See, that started out sounding like it would be awesome to be an albino in that culture. And then you got to the second part, which seemed a lot more uh, troublesome in terms of your life outlook. Yeah, yeah. You're going to want to avoid hanging around groups of people that have knives and forks. Right. That's uh, unfortunate. You'd think you should be lauded around and paraded yeah. about the place rather than just consumed. Yeah, that's right. So there you go, Benin Facts. Thank you very much. I know already lots more about Benin than I did before. <laughs> <laughs> so procrastination, what is it? Basically, it means to delay doing something until a later time because you, you either you just don't want to do it or because you're being lazy, you know, th th there's a reason that you have to do something that's pretty important and you just keep putting it off for whatever reason. Everybody does it. Pete, what do you do to procrastinate? Well, the arranging one's sock drawer is the classic, isn't it? It's like, <laughs> oh, I just need to, I do clean and tidy often if I've got something that I actually should be doing and getting on with. Yes. It's often, you often use different tasks to 
procrastinate rather than saying it's not really procrastination to say i'll do it later it's more i'll find something else to do to push back this task that i have to do yes in my mind anyway absolutely and in the past two weeks mine has involved (laughs) shopping (laughs) you've fully decorated the flat (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i have fixed the toilet seat (laughs) i (laughs) deep cleaned my entire apartment i've watched the tv shows that i've been meaning to watch i've read a book yeah i've cooked i have I've gone for walks. I have procrastinated fully on this episode, but it's less about actually doing this. It's more about procrastinating about talking about slavery. It's just, I just didn't want to have to do it. So let's talk about the history of Benin, minus any slavery. (laughs) We're going to procrastinate and get to that eventually. Okay, here we go. So the history of Benin, Uh, it begins with three areas which have different political systems and ethnicities. Two kingdoms start up around about the same time. This is in around early 1100s. The first sets up a home in southern Benin, and it's called the Alada Kingdom. It's an ethnic group known as the Aya, and they migrate from Tedo, a village in Togo, and they come down the Mono River and they settle. There are three brothers, Kokpon, Duaklin, and Tiagbanlin. And they rule the region. By 1500, 200,000 people are living there. Wow. In eastern Benin, however, there is the Oyo Empire. Now, the Oyo Empire starts with the prince who lived in modern-day Nigeria, and he makes an agreement with his brother to launch a raid on their northern neighbours for insulting their father. On the way to battle, the brothers quarrel and their armies split up. Now, the prince can't attack the neighbour on his own, so he wanders the southern shore until he reaches a place called Busa. Now, when he gets to Busa, a local chief gives him this large snake with a magic charm around its neck. And the chief says to him, follow this snake wherever it goes until it slithers into the ground. So the prince does that and he follows the snake and he founds a new kingdom called Oyo. Okay, I have a number of questions. Yeah. First of which is, whereabouts does a, a snake's neck begin and end? Do you know what? When I wrote that, I thought, let's talk about the snake neck, because <laughs> that is where it says, yeah. Because <laughs> it could be all the way, right? It feels like you could really get to the end and just go, well, that was nothing. It was all, ne- is it all neck? Is it partially neck? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, if only we had somebody we could ask. Um, But the most notable kingdom is Dahomey. So 1600, the Fon people settle in the area. So they come quite late to the party. And they start marrying and breeding with the Aya people. Remember them? By 1645, King Hugibadja builds the royal palaces of Abomey. Their second king, Dakodono, is granted permission by local rulers to settle in the plateau. But he wants more land. And so he asks a local chief named Dan. And the chief says, should I open up my belly and build you a house in it? That's just That's a robust diss. response, isn't it? <laughs> it is. So what does, what does Dokodano do? He kills Dan and he builds his palace exactly on that spot where he killed Dan. Wow. So yes, is his answer. (laughs) Demonstrably yes. (laughs) That's what we're going to do. So Dahomey is therefore derived from the words Dan Xomi, meaning inside of chief belly. Ah. So the kingdom of Dahomey, we're going to be talking a lot about, and it means inside the chief's belly. Okay, so the 1700s, the kingdom of Dahomey is now fully established. It didn't take them very long. By 1708, eight years later, King Agya ascends the throne and he makes some radical changes. Notably, he is driven to sort of expand the, the territory for the kingdom. And so to do this, he creates this military force. Uh, it's an army of about 10,000 professional soldiers, which visiting Europeans later describe as the African Sparta or Black Sparta. Oh. These were a cohesive, well disciplined 
disciplined military. Soldiers starting as young as seven or eight years old, they learn to fight by sort of carrying the shields for the soldiers. And then as they grow up, they you know learn the skills. The soldiers are incentivized with bonuses for killing or capturing enemies, and they are well armed, right? The Dahomey are now trading with Europeans uh, for weapons like muskets, cutlasses, even 25 cannons. Wow. And not only that, the Dahomey also made use of an all-female unit of soldiers called Ausi. These were the king's wives, or our mothers, but which Europeans nicknamed the Dahomey Amazons. That's your obvious frame of reference as a European, isn't it? Ah, oh, they like the Amazons. And they were fierce warrior women. So yeah, that's going to be your, if your classical frame of reference. You find some warrior women, you're going to call them Amazons. Fair enough. Right. So anyway, by 1727, Dahomey is the singular power in the region. They have just dominated the Unsurprisingly, entire Unsurprisingly, with muskets, cannons, <laughs> hardcore fighting women and 10,000 men. It's, it's, it's all it takes, pretty much, yeah. But this changes in 1732, just five years later. The Oyo Empire battles Dahomey over control of the gold trade along the coast and the Oyos win. And so Dahomey is made a vassal of uh, the Oyo Empire, paying tribute and recognising their king. And they do this for the next 80 years. However, despite this, Dahomey continues pretty much as they were, right? So they're just they're just paying tribute and recognising the king. Nothing else pretty much changes. So the army is still in place, they're still doing all that, but they're just doing it on behalf of the Oyo Empire. We've come across this a few times where it doesn't seem sometimes that bad to be a vassal state. You've got to pay your taxes, as it were, but largely you get left alone sometimes. And it? that's pretty much it. And so in that, I guess, vacuum, they continue to increase in power. By 1850, though, the downfall begins for the kingdom of Dahomey. Dahomey tries to attack the kingdom of Porto Novo, but Porto Novo has a deal with France for protection. And so by 1890, the first Franco-Dahomean War begins. It ends almost instantly with French victory and King Benazin, he escapes to the north. In 1892, just two years later, the second Franco-Dahomean War starts and it ends even quicker. This time the French make sure it's final and they just raise everything to the ground. Dahomey lacks the agricultural and sort of mineral resources for a more of a large-scale colonial development, so France just sort of leaves Dahomey untouched pretty much, uh, in case sort of any future discoveries come along, which means that they can then just build it up again. So did, did the Dahomeans have any sense of quite what they were dealing with in terms of France? Because you can imagine if all you see of the French is their sort of comings and goings in a port, you think, well, there's only so many of them and they've got a couple of ships, but we've got 10,000 people. And what you don't see is their nation of millions of people back home that they could ship in and at a moment's, well, not a moment's notice, but reasonably short notice. My guess is they fully understood how strong the French were. I think that they misunderstood how much power they had in the region for reasons that we're not talking about because we're procrastinating and not talking about that certain subject right now. Gotcha. So let's come to that bit as soon as we can, as soon as I get round to it. As soon as we finish this procrastinating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, side note, uh, the Dahomey monarchy still exists, but it's like a ceremonial role. They have no say over what happens. After 1900, in 1904, the country is annexed into French West Africa and becomes the colony of French Dahomey. In 1958, French Dahomey becomes a self-governing colony called the Republic of Dahomey. In 1960, two years later, independence. By 1975, they're renamed the People's Republic of Benin. And by 1991, they're renamed again as the Republic. 
of Benin. No longer for the people, for some reason. <laughs> no longer for the people, that's it, yeah. And that's the history. And nothing else sinister <laughs> happened. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know, there's a hefty chunk of conversation uh, that needs to be addressed about Benin and its connection to, to slavery. And uh, Maybe we should talk about something else first, because there's uh, well, an important I'm, conversation to be had. We should get to it, though. We should talk about it. We definitely so, should. So, you know, but I am a little bit hungry. <laughs> Are you? Are you a bit hungry? I'm a little bit hungry. Yeah. Yes. Do you fancy a little snack? Oh, why not? I'll only take Benin theme. Okay. Well, it just so happens. <laughs> <laughs> I should have prepared better for this episode, and instead, I spent much of my day today cooking kuli kuli. Kuli kuli is the national dish of Benin. Uh, it provides nutrition, protein, and sustenance to the poor and the malnourished. Ooh, that's us. <laughs> Poor malnourished podcasters. <laughs> okay, so what is it? Well, you get ground smashed peanuts and you shape them into balls or like rolls or whatever, and you deep fry them in peanut oil. You mix them with salt, with pepper, some spices. Basically, it's deep fried peanut butter. That sounds freaking amazing. Right. Let me get you some. Yes. Okay, Peter. So, would you like to try some coolie coolie? I would love to. Please reveal. Okay, this was an absolute total disaster. <laughs> <laughs> so I bought some raw peanuts. I ground them. I smashed them. I broke my blender trying to blend them. <laughs> smoke came from my blender. Oh my lord. Yeah. The first real problem was getting the shell, like that paper thin shell off of the peanut yeah. itself, the ground nut. And I read online that the best thing to do is to roast them, which is what I did, and then rub them in between your hands. And that sort of breaks the that paper shell off of the peanut itself. And then you get a hairdryer on cold setting and you blow the peanuts in a tray ah. and all the shell goes flying out. Did you fire peanuts across your room? Yes. <laughs> This entire apartment was covered in peanut shell. I spent a good hour cleaning up. Yeah. Anyway, so then you have to squeeze all the oil out of it. And that's a process that takes about an hour. And then deep fry the, the, the bit that's left in the oil itself from that. Anyway, pictures will go up on our website. It was a disaster. This is the best bits that were left. <laughs> well, it looks it looks pretty good, actually. I, when I first saw it, it looks kind of like, do you know when you do bubble and squeak, you kind of fry up potato, smushed up potato, really. Mm. It's got that kind of crispy colour to it. It's like an it. onion bhaji to me. Now I've picked it up, it feels a bit more like a crisp cookie. Yes, a cookie is a very good way of describing it. So I'm going to have a bite. Go for it. Mmm. <laughs> it is quite a lot like a cookie. I have to say, that's rather nice. No, that's really tasty, actually. You're going to want a drink to go with us, so one second. Okay, uh, well, there you go. You can open that. And here we have a premium quality mango fruit drink. Mm -hmm. Did you just go to our local Beninian outlet? <laughs> <laughs> they have one on every corner here in London. A lot of the regular soft drinks that you're familiar with, you can travel into the depths of Benin's forest to find the most remote tribe and they will have a can of Coca-Cola or some equivalent <laughs> there. I was told that mango juice is a, is a good alternative, so I have some glasses here. All right, so have a little mango. Pour it over my laptop. Thank you. That looks juicy. I do like a bit of mango. I'm going to leave the coolie coolie there. And you yeah, that's really good. Yourself. You'll notice it's served in a coconut shell. Coconuts being very common to the area. I noticed that. No, that's good stuff. I'm going to have another bit, actually. Uh... Do it. God, it was a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> it really was. 
Mm, that's nice. Okay, good. There must be a lot of energy in that because peanuts are quite energy dense, aren't they? Yeah. I can feel myself ballooning in weight as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I suppose we should probably talk about slavery. Let's right? go on with the main event. Okay. I wonder who that is. <laughs> I'll get it. <laughs> So, um, Pete, we, we have some guests. Well, obviously. Yeah. Um, this is Trisha and this is Tom. Hello. Nice to meet Hello, you. Hello. Nice to meet you. So look, it, it turns out snakes are important to the people of Benin. Apparently they worship as gods, especially pythons. I can respect that. Yeah. And according to legend, in 1700, a king of Dahomey took refuge in a forest. And while he was there hiding, some pythons came around and prevented him from being captured. Because who's going to search under the pile of pythons? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway, so he survived. And when he came back to his city, he built these three monuments in their honor. Uh, and today there is a temple of pythons filled with 60 royal python snakes. That's a huge number of pythons. Yeah, and the snakes aren't fed. They're sort of let out once a week and they just sort of roam around the village preying on chickens and mice. They make their way into local homes uh, where they're treated as ordinary guests. So I thought we would welcome some royal pythons into our home that as our guests. just incredibly exciting to me because I <laughs> love snakes. Well, that might explain why Trisha and Tom are here. <laughs> they do have a big box, I've noticed. They do, there is a big box, yeah. It's an intimidatingly large box, if I'm honest. It's a very heavy box. <laughs> so we asked Tom uh, and, and Trisha to come along. This is uh, Tom's Talking Reptiles from Crawley in the UK. Yep. So I've got two different types of pythons. Uh, we've brought one of the royal pythons along. Her name is Shay. Uh, Shay is around 12 years old. Okay. Uh, she was a rehome to us when we actually got her. She hadn't been handled a lot. So we had to get her to trust in people. Uh, now she does loads of birthday parties. There's literally no stopping that snake. She loves coming out now. I've just discovered the concept of the party python. This is news to me. <laughs> this whole world unra unraveling in front of me. The idea of a party python means but something she slightly different. She is a small species of python. One of the smallest, so you're all right for her. Earlier on in our episode, we were talking about a king who was gifted a snake that had a medal around its neck. So my question is, where does the neck begin and end on a snake? So it's quite hard to sh without showing you one. Um, well, why don't you show us? Snake, 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 snake. <laughs> we start off with the small one, um, Shay, just so you guys yeah get used to it before we get the big one. This is Shay, the, Shay the party. Shay also does birthday parties. She does, yeah. <laughs> Very popular at our birthday parties, old Shay. Uh, Box is opening. <laughs> I see what you mean about the ball. Yep, there you go. It's just it's curled up in the ball. Oh, they lock up. The ball of snake. Oh, it's so cute. <laughs> wow. Well, are you coming out? Shay. So is this she a defensive? Well. Oh, a little head. Okay. And um, they'd rather curl up in a ball and hope you go away rather than really? sit there and strike out and make you go away. Okay. Um, yeah, she's kind of hoping. All right, leave me alone now. Uh, but as you see, she comes out. So the head start. Uh, the neck starts here, just the back of the head. So that's where you'd expect where the yeah, head kind and of. And it comes down to about here. So just a little way. Oh, down so that's the body. like a six, six to twelve inches of neck. How do you know which bit is? neck and which bit isn't <laughs> it's hard to so it's when it starts getting quite thick okay um it's when it starts going into the body she's so pretty <laughs> <laughs> little tongues flickering in and out so that's how just spelling seeing who you guys are just making sure that you're all safe she's quite weighty as well isn't she yeah 
built for strength for these guys not built for speed so something like a grass snake that we have over here is built for speed and agility they're very long and slim yeah. they hunt smaller food items but they will eat more she will take down something larger and eat less and so we feed her currently on a up to about a medium-sized rat okay uh it's so every normally for her it's every 10 days uh but although she is always hungry like two days after but yeah she has to have time to digest it she'll get fat so does she have to jump on a snake and kind of grab it? How do so you she get pounces. that first hold? Yeah, so she pounces. She'll lay uh, in ambush. She's an ambush predator. She waits. The rodent will run past. She'll pounce and grab it. Uh, obviously, in captivity, especially over here, it's actually against the law to feed them live food. So we have to feed them a defrosted rat. And given she doesn't, she's not a poisony type snake, does she have fangs or does uh, she, she has have teeth. gums? Yeah, so she's not the, hasn't got a mouth like the iconic when a snake has its mouth and has them big fangs, yeah. that's a venomous snake. Um, she's a constrictor, so she has teeth like us, but sharp and pointy, so she can anchor sort of it into the food. lock-on kind of a deal. Yeah, so she can grab the food and then bring it into her. But she's fully grown for a female. Won't get any bigger than this. Boys are a little bit smaller. Snakes don't combat like other animals for territory, for mate, for food. Uh, the worst combat in these guys would do is they pin each other to the floor they lose their slivers off so they don't really hurt themselves um a little light wrestling really it is it? yeah <laughs> and then the females are bigger because the bigger the female the more like eggs or the more babies they can have yeah go on say something do they hiss do snakes hiss uh, it's more of a warning when a snake hisses we are face to face right now so uh if i'm hearing hiss it's kind of too late but so I have a question. In the story that we were telling, they have a pit of 60 uh, royal pythons. Uh, are they a communal species in that way? Is that uncommon to find them in the wild in such big numbers? No, I mean, with royal pythons, uh, they're not a cannibalistic snake, so they won't go around eating other snakes. Uh, these guys will be found. It's normally um, if there's a food source, if there's a warmth area, the best spot mm -hmm. will find a lot of the same species snake. Okay. So they're kind of all sharing. But yeah, they, they do tolerate each other quite well. So if you see a bundle of snakes, so that's a, a warm location generally, is it? <laughs> yeah, it's a good location. They've got a good spot. Ah, uh, you know what's what. So, you know, the villagers uh, in Benin, they just let the snakes in as their guests. Um, I, I'm guessing that that's fairly uncommon. I, I, yeah. I imagine a lot of people <laughs> would not be happy if a snake <laughs> they, they yeah. found wandering in through the door. Yeah, we get um, we get quite a bit of negativity or a lot of people that are nervous, especially me and snakes. I mean, I used to be terrified of snakes. Did you? Before I started working with Trisha in a reptile shop. Um, I got a job there when I was 15. And after a couple of weeks, Trisha was like, yeah, you need to get over this and made me hold a royal python. <laughs> and it was that baby royal python that got me over my fear. So they're actually one of my favorite. Okay. Um, uh, at the moment, because we do a lot of rescue rehoming, currently we have we have 12 royal pythons in at the moment. Okay. So, but yeah, they are one of my favorite snakes. So Pete, tell me, what does it feel like to hold, to hold the snake? It's soft and dry and it's it's really gentle, actually, I would say. it's. I thought it was kind of squeeze on, like you cling onto a branch, you know. Yeah, but it's, she's quite happy to sit. You're supporting her really well. Uh, snakes tell us if they're not supported, they'll try and get off of you. They'll oh, be really? like, this is not safe. Getting off. I think I've made a friend for life. Here. You really have. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we've brought uh, two pythons with us. So the royal python, which is Shay, and then we've also brought Bimini, who right. is one of our newest additions. I've only had him about six months. Uh, okay. We got him from the RSPCA Centre. That he was rescued from a house where he was kept in a box. Oh, um, and that was it. Just in a box. In a box. Oh, yeah. He's grown crazy. quite a bit since we've had him in the last six months. He's done quite a lot in the media world as well. Oh, really? Okay. Um, so yeah, he's um, is a type of albino. So he's sort of been bred to be the colour that he is. He hasn't got any traditional like part 
uh, Python markings like Oh, Shane. no way. Fantastic. We, we were just learning about albinos. Well, look, should we bring out the mail? Bimini. Is that Why right? not? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Oh, my goodness. That's, that's <laughs> a that lot bigger snake. <laughs> like I said, he's a baby. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it's um, like a banana yellow colour. Yeah. So uh, we predict that he's around three, maybe four years old. Okay, here we go. Pete with snake number two. You want him on the shoulders? Oh, yeah. And then, yeah. Direct him as you want him. He's a lively fellow, isn't he? Hello. Is it warm enough for you? <laughs> Where are you going? Come on. Bimini is Burmese python. Uh, currently feeds on anywhere between two and three rats or a rabbit. A, a day? No, a week. A week, right. Rabbit a week. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's a lot of days. He likes food. <laughs> he knows it's feeding day. Really? <laughs> yeah. I couldn't say to him, oh, you, you're not today because he, he would be at the glass waiting for food. <laughs> no way, really? Yeah. <laughs> Where are you going? Come on. Come on. He's Come a lively fella, isn't he's, he? He's he's just come out. Right. Okay. <laughs> it takes a minute to settle down. <laughs> so, Pete, would you have a snake well, as a pet? I, I worry that I wouldn't be able to look after one properly. And I think you really need to take these things seriously. This is a beautiful creature and it needs to be cared for properly. So I don't think I would, but uh, I would love a neighbor with a snake. Because <laughs> <laughs> they you. are lovely. <laughs> oh, he's well lively, this chap, isn't he? <laughs> I'm, I'm nervous about squishing him. Which is a bit ironic, really. Yeah. <laughs> now, you guys have done really well with them. Normally, we guys don't come in the room. <laughs> well, they are absolutely beautiful creatures. If you want to get yourself a snake, make sure you're absolutely certain as to what you're getting into. It sounds terrible that a lot of your snakes are coming from a rescue background. But love your snake. I think that's yeah. what we've learned. <laughs> All right, Tom, Trisha, thank Amazing. you so much. Thank but we you. have procrastinated enough. We need to get back to the topic at hand. All right. Thank, thank you, you so much. much, guys. This has been great. All right, that is it. No more procrastinating, Pete. All right. I mean, we just can't procrastinate anymore. We've On just with the main the, event. The, I mean, literally, there's nothing more else that I can procrastinate <laughs> with. We have to talk about slavery. So here we go. The slavery trade. So Europeans, they arrive in 1472. Any idea who arrives first? Was it Columbus? <laughs> it was the Portuguese. Oh, the Portuguese, of course. And they meet with the Dahomeans, and a trade agreement is made between the two of them. The Portuguese want carved ivory items, like salt cellars, and spoons, and hunting horns, and exotic art, and slaves. The French turn up. They want to trade too. They, you know, want nice trinkets and things, and also some people. So, soon Dahomey is known across Europe as the major supplier of slaves. Porto Novo, Guida, and a number of other waterfront towns all establish themselves as the principal ports within West Africa for exporting slaves. And eventually the whole area is nicknamed the Slave Coast. Wow. Mm. So... Then the Americas enter the chat, and demand for trading increases exponentially. In August 1619, the first shipload of captives arrives in North America at Jamestown in Virginia. By 1680, there is an explosion in the number of African slaves brought over. Prior to then, it had been European slaves. But from 1680 onwards, it turned to the African market. So by mid-1700s, at the start of the American Revolution, slavery is now common across all 13 colonies, with 3 million Captive Africans having now arrived. Imagine that. Three million human Three million. beings. That's crazy. Numbers. Across 13 colonies, yeah. 
After the war, slave labour is not crucial to the northern economy, and so as the victors in the war. In January 1807, the US Congress decides to pass an act to prohibit the importation of slaves into any port or place within the jurisdiction of the United States from any foreign kingdom, place or country. One year later, 1808, Britain's role in the transatlantic slave trade is also over, and others begin to follow suit, so that that ended slavery, right? Did it, though? (laughs) Not quite. So laws have been passed, treaties have been signed, but the deportation of Africans still continues. The Royal Navy sends boats to patrol the waters off the coast of Dahomey, and they form, essentially, a blockade to prevent any boats getting in or out. But European and American ships are still finding their way through, and they are now conducting what is known as illegitimate trade. Not that it was ever hugely legitimate, it was legal, perhaps. <laughs> just legal, yeah. The effect is huge. Throughout the 1860s, there is a total of 24,000 slaves that are being transported. But by the 1780s, so 80 years later, 102,000 people a decade are being transported. Of those 24,000 people, I want to tell you about one of them. And that's pretty much what we're going to be talking about for the rest of this episode. So settle in and let me tell you about Kazula, the last slave. The last slave? Wow. In 1852, following international pressure, the king of Dahomey agrees to abolish slavery. Slaves had been selling for about 50 to $60 a head at Ouida, his slave port, and the king of Dahomey was earning an estimated around about £250,000 a year selling captives. That's wealth, that's power, that's prestige, and that is authority. So it's no surprise that just five years later, in 1857, the king changes his mind. And on November 9th, 1858, a local newspaper in Alabama reports, The king of Dahomey was driving a brisk trade at Ouida. Now, this catches the attention of three brothers, Jim, Tim, and Burns Mayer. Natives of Maine, these three men had a shipyard on the Alabama River and were keen slave owners and anti-abolitionists. One night, the brothers are drinking with a wealthy gentleman from New Orleans when the Mayers bet him that they could successfully smuggle Africans into the US and enslave them. Despite the Slavery Act being in effect for 50 years now, they knew it would be a death sentence if they got caught, but still, the bet was taken. Hell of a bet. So they immediately hire one of their business acquaintances, a man named Captain William Bill Foster, and he's going to be their man to make the run to Africa. They tell him to head to Dahomey to meet with the king, and they give him $9,000 of their gold. And so Captain Foster, he selects his fastest boat for the job called the Clotilda. This is a ship that is designed for carrying lumber. It was a two-masted schooner that was 86 feet long, that's 26 metres long, 23 feet wide, 7 metres wide, uh, and had a copper-sheathed hull. And on March 4th, 1860, Foster and a crew of 11 sailors slip out of the Alabama waters heading for Ouida. The voyage is uneventful until they reach the Cape Verde Islands and a hurricane hits them. Uh, They put in for repairs and at this point the crew decide they're going to mutiny. They demand more pay or else they're going to go and inform the British Navy of what they're up to. Foster agrees to the demands, obviously, because what else are you going to do? isn't he, at that point? (laughs) Yeah, but later he laughingly admitted how he broke this promise as soon as it was safe to do so. (laughs) So, gives you an idea of his character. True integrity, then. (laughs) Yeah. Repairs being made to the Clotilda, it sails away, and in July 1860, they anchor off the shore of Ouida. There is no harbour, so the men head to shore in little surf boats. 
Now, at this point, we're going to take a little trip inland to Bante, a small village which is home to the Isha tribe of the Yoruba people of West Africa. One member of the community is a bright young man called Kasula. Kasula is the second child of Fondlolu, the second of his father's three wives. Kasula had five siblings and another twelve from his father's other two wives. As a child, Kasula would grow up playing games with other children, wrestling with them, competing to see who can run the fastest. They would climb trees, collect coconuts, hunted pineapples and bananas just by their smell, he said. In the evening, they would sit around whilst their mothers would tell stories about all of the animals that lived in the forest around them. At 14, Kasula is trained to be a soldier. His people are like agricultural, right? They're, they're peaceful farmer folk, but they still need to be able to know how to defend themselves, so he's trained how to like defend the, the town. At 19, Kasula is undergoing the initiation for marriage. Basically, he finds a woman that he falls in love with. Her father is then paid two of everything that Kasula's family has. Two cows, two sheep, two goats, two chickens, two yams, maybe a little bit of gold as well. So things are looking up for Kasula. But then, three strangers from Dahomey arrive, and they demand to see the king. They say that the Dahomean king wants to be kind, and therefore is only asking for half of all of their crops. Generous! <laughs> Thanks, man! <laughs> <laughs> and so the, the village king refuses, saying that the king of Dahomey has plenty of land to farm his own, and so the three men say, well, the king's going to be displeased, and they leave. By daybreak the next day, as people are waking up, the great gate to the village is smashed open and a great wave of soldiers rush in, wielding guns and knives. The soldiers cause panic among the villagers, who run for the gates, but they are ambushed by soldiers that are hiding in the bush. They've got the place surrounded. The soldiers focus on the old people first. They saw at their necks with a knife until, with a single twist, they could tear their heads clean off. Female soldiers catch the village children and tie them up by their wrists. Some unfortunate villagers have their jawbones ripped out while they are still alive and left to die slowly, writhing in agony. Oh my lord. Kazula witnesses all of this, and he tries to run, but is grabbed and he's tied up as well. Kazula begs to help find his mama, but he's ignored. The village king is brought out before the king of Dahomey, and his head is also removed. Kazula doesn't see his family after that. Later, he would say that whenever he thought about them, he'd try not to cry, but his eyes wouldn't stop crying, and that he had tears run down inside me all the time. I can see why he wanted to procrastinate this back. This is hard going. Yes. Because this was a dawn attack, Kazula and his people are made to walk throughout the entire day, tied in a line under the blazing sun. As they walk, the king of Dahomey, however, is carried alongside in a hammock, surrounded by his soldiers, each of them carrying the heads of two or three people that they'd killed. Days pass as the captives walk to Dahomey. The smell of the rotting heads gets so bad that the soldiers have to smoke them over a fire in front of all of the captured villagers. After nine days, they arrive at the king's palace in Dahomey. Kazula is struck by the amount of skull bones which decorate the palace. The captives are led to Ouida, and he's led to what is known as a barracoon, which is a Catalan word, a Portuguese-Spanish word for hut. 
And it's basically a slave warehouse where the captives were kept in captivity, fed very little, and only allowed sort of limited exercise. A prison, essentially. Many died in the barracoon, some from the hardship of their capture, some due to diseases, and some just from grief and heartbreak. After three weeks of living in these conditions, a man walks into the barracoon and Kasula is shocked. He has white skin, something he's never seen before. This man is Captain Bill Foster of the Clotilda. Okay, so when Foster arrives on the shore, remember he's on that little rowboat, he's met by six stalwart blacks, he says, each delegated to carry him in a hammock to meet the Prince of Dahomey. King was preoccupied, I guess, wasn't available to meet him. So gracious and hospitable, the Prince shows Foster the sights of Weida, and you can just imagine what those sights might be. <laughs> yeah. And these are the heads. <laughs> yeah. Foster is super impressed by what he sees. Uh, he says that the great wealth that the prince is surrounded by is just incredible. He says that he's taken by this large square room that is filled with thousands of snakes, collected there for ceremonial purposes. Must have been quite impressive to see. Foster's company is so pleasant that the prince grants him a present. He says, here, have a person. One that is superior wisdom and exalted taste designated as the finest specimen. So Foster chooses a young man named Gumpa. Gumpa? Yeah. I thought that was going to be Kazula. Kazula coming back. Nope, that's Gumpa. So Foster made, making this selection with the intention of flattering the prince to whom Gumpa was nearly related. That's the most backhanded of compliments, isn't it? You are the finest of the slaves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ceremony's over. The prince and Foster get down to business. When Foster is shown the barracoon at Weida, he found them, he said, overflowing with people to choose from. This is his words. We went to the warehouse where they had in confinement 4,000 captives in a state of nudity from which they gave me liberty to select as mine and offering to brand them for me, which I forbid. At least no branding. Something, I suppose, is in what I suspect is going to continue to be bleak for a while. <laughs> yeah. So through the prince's translator, the people are separated by gender. Everybody is next made to stand in circles, 10 people in each circle. In one of the male circles is Kasula. So Captain Foster walks around these circles of captives, looking hard, he says, at their skin, their feet, their legs and their mouths. He starts to make his selection. For every male, he chooses a female. Eventually, he's identified 130 men, women, and children, Kazula being one of them. Foster and the prince leave to finalise the payment. Foster pays for a total of 125 men, women, and children in the end, buying each for about $100. So for Kasula and those selected by Foster, they're brought a lot of food. Basically, they're told that they're going to leave the barracoon. So there's kind of like this weird mix where they welcome this feast because food has been scarce so far. But afterwards, there's like huge amount of tears between them because, well, Kasula and the rest don't want to leave their people in Dahomey to what could be an uncertain future. So with the sail complete, Foster is carried in his hammock across a shallow river to the beach, through the surf, and back by surfboat to his ship. The 126, in quotes, pieces of property follow behind in additional surfboats. As Kasula and the slaves board the Clotilda, bearing in mind he's never seen the ocean before, <laughs> you know, this is... It's a major lifestyle change, isn't Major it? change, yeah. Each of the captives, to their horror and shame, are stripped naked and led below decks into the cramped, dark and manacled boat. Oh my lord, that must be horrendous. 
When 116 of the slaves were on board, Captain Foster, now up in the rigging keeping watch, suddenly became alarmed. He thought he spotted the Homian ships starting to raise black flags, which he interpreted as a sign that they were planning to recapture the cargo and hold him for ransom. So, absolutely terrified, he hurries back down to the deck and he gives orders to immediately abandon any other, in quotes, cargo not already on board. So with sails deployed, they race out of the Bight of Benin as fast as they could. On day two of the journey to America, an English cruiser chases them, but they escape. Over the next 13 days, Kasula and the rest of his people remain naked, chained, and in the dark, with zero room to move. Rocking about in a belly of a boat on top of all that. Exactly, yeah. And the Clotilda, just so we know, had more space than most slaver ships. Most slaver ships had two and a half to three feet in height, whereas the Clotilda had about five feet. Couldn't stand up, you can't, you can barely crawl. So they had very little to eat, and only two drinks of a very sour-tasting water were given to them every day. From research, I can see that actually slaves were given water with a mixture of vinegar added to it, and that was to help them prevent getting scurvy. Oh, right. Yeah, vinegar water. Mm. Delicious. On the 13th day, they're brought up on deck so that they can regain the use of their limbs, it says. And after 70 days, the Clotilda finally sails into US waters. Kazula says that he hated every part of the journey. But he also says that he claims no ill will towards the captain, Bill Foster. He said that despite their hardship, none of his people had gotten sick and none had died. The captain hadn't abused them or ever treated them unfairly. I mean, I would suggest being taken as a slave is a form of abuse on its own, but uh, it just only goes to show how awful, how it can even be worse than this. It's shocking. On July 9th, near the Alabama border, Foster finally leaves the Clotilda and travels overland by horse and buggy to meet with the Mayer brothers. Lights were smothered, and in the darkness, quickly and quietly, the captives were transferred from the Clotilda to a river steamboat and taken up the Alabama River. Only here is where the captives are finally given some clothes. When the crew of the Clotilda mutinied once again, Foster withdraws his six shooters and gives them several warning shots, telling them to leave at once while they still could. The Mayer brothers wait at the train station to ensure that all 11 of them leave town peacefully. Meanwhile, Foster returns to the Clotilda and he sails it to a riverbed where he burns it and sinks it to the bottom of the river. Now, the Africans couldn't legally be registered as slaves because they were smuggled. So to Kasula's horror, they are then split up divided between the different owners. So Jim Mayer, uh, he took 32 of the slaves, including Kasula. Jim couldn't pronounce his name, Kasula. So Kasula said that if he was his property, then you can call me Kujo. And thereafter, his slave name became Kujo Lewis. Tim Mayer took eight of them. Burns Mayer took 10. And Captain Foster also took 10. Kazula said at this time that his grief was so heavy that he couldn't stand it. Being parted from one another and crying for home, he says that he nearly died in his sleep, dreaming about his mama. And so... The last slave. In 1861, the federal government prosecuted Mayer and Captain Foster for illegal slave importation, but the case was dismissed due to, in quotes, lack of evidence from the ship or its manifest. Didn't think to ask any of the people involved. Uh, hello, hands up who's been recently illegally smuggled? Oh, me. No, I guess no one here. <laughs> Didn't come up. This will never, this mystery will never be solved. After their freedom did come, though, the 
Africans created a town called Africa Town, um, which has since been renamed as Plateau. Uh, but the town is still predominantly African in both culture and also in population. Kazula outlived all the other captives from the Clotilda, becoming known as the last slave in America. His own words were immortalized in this incredible book, Barracoon, by Zora Neale Hurston, uh, which is where I've been able to capture a lot of this information in his own words. Kazula lived for 67 years as a free man in Africa. Africatown in America, the only man alive who had the memory of his African home, the horrors of the slave raid, the barracoon, and life in slavery. In May 2019, the Alabama Historical Commission announced that the wreck of the Clotilda had been found. Oh, wow. Yeah, and work is now underway to preserve the remains, which is now immortalized as the last known slave ship to the United States of America. I could crack on with that prosecution now. Yeah, yeah. And side note, um, 25 years later, in 1885, the last slave ship departs from Dahomey, bound for Brazil. So they were still doing it for 25 years. I mean, it makes you, it's, well, it doesn't even make you think, it's almost beyond imagining that kind of radical change to your life. You know, you're living in your village or your town, and then you get taken as a slave by your neighbours, which is a sort of comprehensible thing to happen. Awful, but it's within your realm of conceptualization. And then you've never seen the ocean before and you see a boat. So, you're, okay, well, you can sort of imagine... I'm sure there were river boats, so you can imagine what's going on there. But then you can just get taken to another country for this entirely different life that was just totally inconceivable to you before. It must totally be, inconceivable when you were in your an village. astonishing thing to have to endure. And then that's just on the face of it. Then there's all the horrors that you have to actually go through in the experience itself. Yeah. There, there is an epilogue to this, which I, I just sort of wanted to talk about. And this is you know, perhaps something that we would normally talk about on the verdict, actually. But I felt like it was important to sort of discuss as part of this. And it's something that I put off procrastinated around it. <laughs> and that's to talk about responsibility. So the slave trade, you know, I think we can agree one of the more dramatic chapters in the story of human existence. It's probably not an exaggeration to say that slavery is incredibly complex, uh, emotional issue especially for those that live in the West Coast of Africa. On the one hand, West Africans regard slavery as one of the great crimes in human history. On the other hand, they're kind of proud that their own ancestors weren't slaves. It sort of raises this sort of dicey question of responsibility and who should take the blame. Now, the obvious answer is that the European powers are accountable. You know, we're talking about a period of 400 years, over 12 million Africans were transported. That's an average of 82 people a day for 400 years. And that doesn't even include the 1 to 2 million Africans who died during the passage across the Atlantic. But Africans had also practiced slavery for hundreds of years before white people arrived. They raided other tribes, they made human sacrifices of the conquered, and they enslaved others for their own use. Most slaves were women, working as sort of servants or concubines, and while they could eventually become members of their owners' families, that could take generations, so it wouldn't be necessarily in their own lifetimes. Slavery was a traditional custom long before the Europeans arrived. But the arrival of the Europeans changed the scale of things. Guns, liquor, all super attractive propositions, things that, that they wanted. Food and art were being traded for them. And when the appetite for slaves overtook the food and art, it wasn't a difficult stretch to start selling those captives whom they were going to sacrifice or make slaves anyway. So on the flip side is, you know, it gave the kingdom such wealth and political power that the temptation is 
too great. Yeah, the, the big change is really the sort of industrialization of the thing, right? So the, for me, there's two aspects. There's one, the sort of the scale is obviously quite different. But also I think slavery has been a feature of most societies historically going back right more or less to the start. But the slave is usually as a, has a quite a different status. As you say, there's the possibility of ceasing to become a slave. It's more closer to a sort of indentured servitude and you live in a household. They're being treated as literal property and just thrown overboard and murdered when you're not use, useful anymore seems to be something that was more applicable to the transatlantic slave trade than the slave, the slavery that was going on previous to that. I mean, you can't overlook the fact that the, the Homians were wandering back from town with severed heads in their hands, right? It's, these, it's, it's all too easy to kind of say, oh yeah, they didn't know what was going on. But I suspect you know what's happening when you're beheading someone and taking their head home. Uh, you know what you're so doing. You can't really say these guys had no idea. You're right. I think it, and it, it, I think it does come down to sort of the scale of that appetite for slavery. You know, the, the, the king of Dahomey to sort of had to maintain a sufficient slave supply. So he had to instigate wars and lead raids on his neighboring communities with the sole purpose of filling his royal stockade with with captives right he had to to keep doing that to maintain the industry eventually the dahomians then you know are undertaking these widespread raids right across west africa and bringing in millions of captives to the coast that, that they can sell as slaves in fact a 17th century trader said that wars make gold scarce but negroes plenty and, and, you know, one argument is that all Africans and their descendants have been and continue to be predatory victims of European culture. Um, you know, an example being that drug barons shouldn't be blamed because drug addicts are partly responsible for their crimes, right? But that diminishes Africans in, in, in the guise of defending them because they're not passive victims in this. Colonialism converted like a small scale practice into a global hellish network. Africans didn't create or control that, but they collaborated in that system. Yeah, they participated in a trade for the same reason that Europeans did, and that is that they could profit from it. And they were right, they did, you know, no matter how wrong it looks like in retrospect. In in the book, Barracoon, Kazula is quoted. At the end of his life, he says, the white people held my people in slavery in America. They had brought us, it is true, and exploited us. But the inescapable fact that stuck in my craw was that my people had sold me and the white people had bought me. That did away with the folklore I had been brought up on, that the white people had gone to Africa, waved a red handkerchief at the Africans and lured them aboard ship and sailed away. You know, and and many different peoples of different colours, cultures, they've all got their hands dirty with slavery, as you said. And that's important because it's it sort of becomes like this shared duty amongst all of us to try and challenge and change that injustice as it is today, because Africa is still the epicentre of modern day slavery. The sex trade, forced labour and child slaves are all actively underway in African countries to today. In 2018, for example, about 9 million Africans lived in servitude without the choice to do so. You're talking about Chad, Congo, Ethiopia, Ghana, Togo, Benin, Madagascar, Mali, Mauritania, Niger, Sudan, South Africa, you know, and and just last year, 2021, an estimated 200,000 children were sold by their parents into unpaid servitude for just $30 each. In 2009, Barack Obama brought his family to visit uh, Barracoon. And after the visit, he spoke of the impact on his two teenage daughters. And he said, hopefully one of the things that was imparted to them during this trip is their sense of obligation to fight oppression and cruelty wherever it appears. Yeah, I think as soon as you start to 
colour code right and wrong and assign it to any given group of people, you lose the thing that should unite us all, which is the humanity that we all share. So as soon as you either say one side is responsible or not or not responsible because of the, their ethnicity and location, you're missing out on seeing the bigger picture, I feel like, that you should say it, it should be evident today that you know slavery is something that we, we should all be quite happy to agree is something that should be wiped out wherever possible. Absolutely, completely agree. Anyway, that's it. I'm sure we'll have lots more to talk about on next week's The Verdict. But that's the story that I've got to tell for you today. That was a very interesting story. Thank you very much. It was heavier going than our traditional light drift through history, but uh, that's the nature of the topic and we have to face into some difficult tasks and topics sometimes. As much as you try to procrastinate and get away from doing (laughs) so. You did your very best to push (laughs) that, but you had to face into your duty in the end. There you go. Peter, you know what time it is. Is it time to roll a new and exciting episode for next week? <laughs> it's exactly the time, yeah. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Okay, I am going to turn it on. Oh, that's sounding good. Okay, Peter, your country is... <laughs> I'm so scared. <laughs> Slovenia. Slovenia. Ooh. We haven't done Slovenia? I once went to Slovenia uh, where they huh. told me that you can't spell Slovenia without love. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good point. <laughs> Okay, and, uh, well, you need a time period then, don't you? I do. Okay, and your time period is... Wildcard. Wildcard, excellent. Explain the rules for wildcard. Rules for wildcard are, I have one minute to decide what time period I want to choose uh, after we have rolled all of the other elements of the next show. That's right. Okay, so let's move on to the next one. Topic. Your topic is... Light. Light. So the timer starts now. Oh, now do I want to do something electric? Because electric light could be interesting. We could laser light shows. That's probably a more modern thing. Shall I go more recent? Or do I do light the dawn of man? I could go early man. We know they're always around. (laughs) Especially in Slovenia. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I'm going to say, this is a real gamble. The 70s. The 1970s. The 1970s. So 1970s to 1980. Yes. You're booked in. I don't know why I said that. Every time we get a wild card, I immediately regret my choice. But that's okay. I'll stick with it. Okay, so it is going to be light in Slovenia between 1970 to 1980. Good luck, Peter. Thank you very much. Okay, so that's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about on the show, uh, or just want to say hello, you can reach out to us on social media through our website, hhepodcast.com, or you can email us at, at Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. That's right. We'd really love to hear from you. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show like Stephen Hokerd. I hope I'm saying that right. It's a Dutch name. Stephen's from the Netherlands, and he very kindly wrote to us to say, I really enjoy your show. Thank you very much. It's informative, very fun, and really makes me learn about history outside of just Europe, the US. Also, and I quote, guaranteed to be interesting. I'll put that on the poster when we have a poster. <laughs> Thanks, Stephen. Uh, well, yeah, well, look, one way to definitely feature on a future episode is to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Your recommendations really go to help bring the show to new listeners. Uh, if you're on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, you can find us with our handle at, at HHE Podcast and subscribe to those, and you'll get a little ping alert every time we post our one minute animated bites. Yep, but we're going to be back again soon with The Verdict. 
But in the meantime, if you can't get enough of the show, check out our back catalogue of episodes, which you can find in the podcast app, the YouTubes, or on our website, hhepodcast.com. All right. So a huge thanks again to Ryan. Thank you, Peter. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is you've been listening to... happened everywhere. Hey Pete. Hey Ryan. Do you want to play a game? Oh, I'd love to. I was thinking we could play Hide and Go Snake. I think you mean Hide and Go Seek? No, no, no. Hide and Go Snake. It's like Hide and Go Seek, only you go and hide, but under a pile of snakes. Ah, oh, that's why you've got a big pile of snakes. That's right, I hired them, yeah. Okay, so how does it work? Well, I close my eyes and count to five. Meanwhile, you go and hide under the pile of snakes. That sounds like fun. All right, let's play Hide and Go Snake. Let's do it. All right, I'm counting down. One, two, three. Ah! Four. Ah! Pete, stop, you're putting me off. Ah! Four. Four. What are you doing? They keep biting me, Ryan. What do you mean they're biting you? Pythons ah! don't bite. This, ah, are you sure they're pythons? Yeah, of course I'm sure. Oh, no, wait. Ah! No, wait, it says vipers here. Help me. Deadly vipers. Ah! What does venomous mean? Yeah, I'm swelling up. It's getting really big, Ryan. Send for help. I need anti-venom. It really hurts. Tell mum I love her. <laughs> <laughs>